Hi, this is Jeff, host of the podcast. I have two quick things to tell you before we dive into my latest interview. First, if you use the Stitcher app for listening to podcasts, you need to listen to this. Unfortunately, the Stitcher app is closing at the end of August, so you'll need to find a new podcast app, either for Android or your iPhone. And when you start using your new podcast listening app, don't forget to subscribe to the Reading and Writing Podcast so you won't miss a single episode. I have a podcast that I want to tell you about. I think you will like it. The Amelia Project. Have you ever wanted to disappear and start over? What if there was a company that could provide such a service? The Amelia Project is a fiction comedy podcast about a death-faking company. It is dark as cocoa beans and as silly as rainbow sprinkles. The Amelia Project is crammed full of comedy, mystery, twist, and fine beverages. If you like Sherlock Holmes, Dirk Gently, or Monty Python, this will be your cup of cocoa. You can listen to the Amelia Project podcast today wherever you get your podcasts. Search for the Amelia Project and look out for the logo of a black and orange phoenix rising from a cup. Listen today. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm joined on the podcast today by Benjamin Stevenson, author of the novel, Everyone in My Family Has Killed Someone. Publishers Weekly wrote about the novel, exceptionally clever and amusing. Stevenson carries off this tour de force with all the aplomb of a master magician who conducts his tricks in plain view. Benjamin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, if someone listening hasn't yet heard about your new novel, Everyone in My Family Has Killed Someone, how would you describe the novel? Sure. Um, I like to start by saying it's not a memoir, so I'm glad you've introduced it as a novel because that's a question I get quite frequently. But basically, it's about um, Ernest Cunningham, and he goes to his family reunion, which is set at a ski resort in the middle of the Australian winter. And all his family is there and they've all got their different gripes and it's got that sort of classic tension of a family, a dreaded family reunion. And what happens is a serial killer starts picking them off one by one. But the thing is that inside this Cunningham family, all of them have in the past killed someone. So the question becomes for Ernest in a family of killers, how does he find the murderer? Do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to write this novel? Yeah, I had a couple of things, um, but to be as bare bones as possible, I came up with the title and I just thought that is such a good title. I have to figure out a book that I can write around that title. And I think I sat on the title for four or five months while I was like, how do I get a plot that works inside this title? Um, and then I realized that the way to do it was to was to take it quite literally and, and break it down and, and do a murder for each or a killing for each family member as well as a concurrent narrative of the series of murders. So there's nine mysteries in the book because you want to know who each of the eight um, family members killed and you want to know who the main killer is. So um, then I realized if I broke it down as nine mini mysteries, then I could set it up and, and write the book backwards for the title. But really, I just... I was trying to think, what's the most bizarre 
crazy audacious idea I can have and and it was the title everyone in my family has killed someone you know like the movie snakes on the plane you write the title first and then you then you go backwards and see if you can fit the content <laughs> well given what you just said um what is your writing process and does it change from novel to novel are you someone um given what you just uh explained did you sit down and kind of outline in a general sense, the 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 various storylines, or did you just kind of have that in your head and kind of dive into the narrative? How does that work for you? I'm a very heavy plotter, but it does change novel to novel. Um, so I've written a couple of novels before this one um, that were published in Australia, and I plotted them incredibly heavily, very, very tightly before I sat down to write them. And then this one... <coughs> Because I wanted to use a little bit of a little bit of humor in the text, and I, I just wanted to keep it feeling fresh and lively, and I thought the way to achieve that was to plot it a little bit less um, at the at the start. And so, with this one, like I said, there's sort of nine mysteries, and I probably had six or seven of them worked out, and I left sort of two or three of them to surprise me during the text. Um, so there's a couple of the family members that I didn't know where their plot line was going to go. But I had enough when I started and I was like, I want to surprise myself in this book as a bit of an experiment to break out from my usual writing style. And then my next book, um, I've plotted it very heavily because um, that was quite hard. <laughs> Filling in the gaps and, and, and <laughs> editing as you go, like it was a really rewarding experience. And I, I know I'm a big fan of what came out of it. Um, but then this one I've gone back to, well, you know, it's a labyrinthine homes in Christie-esque mystery. And so I've, I've got to make sure that I've got all the clues, which I did have for this one as well, but I, I just tightened it up. So I move from book to book depending on how I'm feeling or really it comes down to if there's energy on the page, if there's sort of pep to the sentences. And I sometimes I worry that overplotting can sort of rob you of that, that vibrancy. Um, so that's why I've switched it up. And that that outlining or plotting is that kind of a scene by scene breakdown, and is it is it kind of showing you, um, uh, kind of the different storylines from a fifty thousand feet view, so to speak? Um, yeah, it's more for me. It more takes the form of sort of a lengthy synopsis, so a completely mm-hmm. without style. And then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happens, and this person talks to this person, and kills this person. Um, but it can get quite fleshy. So the new book's are quite a good example that I'm working on now. It, the synopsis is 10,000 words and the, the final book is, is 90,000 words. And um, for everyone, I think the synopsis was maybe 2,500 words and I just sort of fleshed it out um, that way. But for this book as well, because there's so many clues in it, I really wanted to, one of the things I wanted to do was when I decided I was going to write a tribute to Golden Age Mysteries, I'm like, in my head, I was like, I've got to make sure that I deliver on this clues and crime-solving aspect that's so important to the genre. Um, and so I really went out of my way to make sure there's a clue on every page. So the denouement when Ernest stands up in the library, because of course it happens in a library, and reveals the killer by telling everyone what he knows. He's going through the whole book. He's not saying, I noticed two things on page 50 and page 210. And here's how I put the mystery together. He's going, I've noticed a hundred things 
and he's all of them together and how they build the story. So, <laughs> which sounds quite uh, burdensome, but I think it's really, I think it comes across really fun and, and it makes sure that every page, like I said, it's that limeliness. You always, there's no sentence in my book that doesn't hint the murderer in some way or hint at the overall plot progression. Everything, literally everything um, contributes down to the punctuation in the book becomes a clue as well. So I had an Excel spreadsheet of all of those clues, which sort of took the place of the synopsis for this book. And I had sort of 250 points in the book, which were in my Excel spreadsheet. And, you know, it's just in there. I had these little columns and it was, um, have you put this clue in? And then I would tick it and then I would be like, does the clue work? And then I'd tick it if it worked in context or if I needed to work on it. And then have you remembered to call back to the clue at the end as a clue? Because when I handed in the first draft of the book, there are all these clues that I sort of forgot to include in the ending. And then Ernest is standing up and he's solving the crime. And then I did the reread of the edit. And I'm like, I was making myself notes. I'm like, oh, this should be a clue. I should include this in the end. And then I'm like, oh, that's how I planned it. And I just forgot. So you're editing yourself <laughs> with your own ideas thinking, hey, that's a great idea. It's an idea you had six months ago, but you just forgot. Anyway, long-winded answer is a bit of a synopsis, a few Excel spreadsheets, which is um, quite terrifying for writers, um, but I managed to sort of figure out and <laughs> figure them out. What was your original writing journey that led you to writing and getting your first novel published? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it's different for so many people, and it was it, yeah different again for me. I've been a stand-up comedian for 15 years. So um, I went to uni and studied English and loved books and wanted to work with books and, and be a writer, but also work with books, perhaps in publishing. And then I sort of, uh, you know, in the town I grew up, we didn't have a publishing house, all that kind of stuff. It wasn't, it's not a small town, but it's not like a thriving metropolis of um, commerce. <laughs> um, so I sort of thought, I. Uh, I might not be able to get that foot in the door. So I'll put that on hold while I go and do comedy for the next 10 years. And then I was doing comedy and I did that for a long time. And then I realized that, oh, well, maybe I do want to go back to publishing. So I actually went back in um, and I'd moved cities by now and I started working at a literary agency. And I discovered that I was really good with the crime and thriller novels, which is what I've always loved to read and what I'd hoped one day to write. And so um, I worked a couple of years um, working on these crime and thriller novels and it just got to a point where I'm sort of examining things structurally or I'm sending authors whose works I absolutely love and admire and I'm sending them structural notes on their books and I'm thinking to myself, well, who am I to tell this person how they should write a crime novel? You know, Do I need to sort of, yeah, do I need to prove myself? Do I think I could do this? And then, and then I might um, might strengthen the advice that I can give give to authors, um, or you know, discover I'm an abject failure. So it just sort of came to that crossroads point where it it's sort of a combination of, oh, I think I can, I think I can do this, and I think I should try because I think it will grow my overall um, ability regardless of where I'm using it. Um, and then I was lucky enough. Um, to land a publisher with not that book the second book i wrote the first book i wrote was resoundingly turned down and then um uh but really positively from my eventual publisher said this book's not working for these reasons and um these are the bits that we really like about your writing 
So why don't you go away and do more of that, which I think was just the most amazing piece of feedback you can get as an unpublished writer. And so I went away and did more of the stuff that they liked and then came back with a new book and they, and they signed me on. So that's sort of how it went. A long-winded way. The trick is a, a lot of people, because I work, because I do work in publishing um, back then, um, a lot of people are like, oh, was it a shortcut? Was it a shortcut? And it was way harder <laughs> because the expectations are so high. Your reputation at work is on the line. You know, nobody's wanting to give you a shortcut because they think that people will think you get a shortcut. So it's it's like having your dad coach a football team, you know. He does he deliberately doesn't pick you because it looks it looks like favoritism. Um yeah, so it was it was a a uh, a long developmental journey and yeah, really, really fun on every step of the way. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Well, you, you didn't get preferential treatment. Did it help you at all knowing the behind the scenes of the publication process once your first novel was accepted? Yes. I think that's given me uh, a big personal advantage. I think one thing that I'm very good at, um, I think I understand the editing process and I understand how, um, how impersonal it is. And, and you know, it's, it's really affronting as an author to do and an edit on your book and have someone get their hands into the dough that you're making and, and, and help transform it into something better. But it always feels confronting when you first address it. And I think I was very well prepared for the process and, and how that would be. So I think that I, well, hopefully I come across, um, collaboratively and, and, and sort of understand, okay, well, you know, I might have been trying to do this, but, but my publisher and, and the sales and marketing team might think this for the cover or, or, you know, and so it's sort of, um, it helps me sort of sometimes put my ego in check. And the other thing it helps me with is just being pragmatic and practical and sort of understanding the processes. You know, um, I, I find it hard to be, uh, disappointed in things because, um, publishing is such a, such a magic industry and so many things happen with luck and timing. And so if I don't get X appearance here or, or didn't achieve that goal or whatever, you know, I'm so practical about it because I've worked behind the scenes. I'm like, I know that takes like six months to happen. So I'm, I don't need to ask people all the time or whatever. So I think I've, I've brought that sort of practical element to it. Um, where I can be quite relaxed and sort of understand that um, what's happening behind the scenes. Because as an author, and I think a lot of authors um, discover this, and, and I've also discovered this through my writing, but I knew a little bit about it first. But um, as an author, you go through great, great tranches of time where nobody talks to you. So, you know, if 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 you don't have 
a book that's in edits or, or you're just writing on your own. I mean, you're not in constant or I'm not in constant communication um, with my publisher during those aspects of the of the um, of the writing. And, you know, there's a certain window of, of sales and marketing where they talk to you a lot, but then, you know, they can leave you alone. They can leave me alone for a whole year, um, which can feel like you can sort of think, well, hang on, but, you know, no one's talked to me. Am I, am I getting dropped? Am, do they hate me? Um, but I think it's just everybody has their own creative processes. And for me, it's, it's to shut myself away for a year and say, all right, I'm not, I'm not talking to anybody because I'm writing the book and then, and then we'll have all those conversations. So the perspective, I guess what I'm trying to say is the perspective that not everything in publishing needs to happen right now um, is something that I really um, bring, I think, to my work. And I think it's really benefited me putting out the work that, that, that I want to publish and that I love and, and not being too stressed about all those outside factors. What writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories or novels? I think this is a fairly pedestrian answer and everybody I assume on your podcast will give it, but you've got to read um, and you've got to read widely and modern in the genre that you're writing in. So, you know, there's a lot of, it's very easy to sort of fall back on your favorites or, or read a lot of classics um, and, but catching up with the modern stuff, reading stuff outside of your genre, you know, experimenting with your tastes. Um, they can all build your book, even if they're not really sort of what you're writing. They can sort of help you see how other people do things. And you might think, well, that book's not for me, but I really appreciated how they handled the structure, um, even though it's outside of my genre. And then think about how they did it. And then that can sort of grow your own processes. So just reading super widely, um, but making sure that you're reading both the important books in the genre and the modern books in the genre, because um, that will sort of um, speak to you uh, across the whole the whole breadth of books in the market. But then also, you know, not to uh, try. You've just got to write the book that your that your fingertips have to write. You know, that's the only way to write a book is to write the story that you have to tell. And um, by the time you see a trend on shelves, uh, that trend is already over on the back end of publishing. So don't write towards a trend because you'll miss it. Um, and there's no way to manufacture a book that's going to sort of, uh, oh, well, this book will sell the best at this exact point of time. You can never achieve that. So you've just got to write what your voice is telling you to write, and that's how you get great books. Are you still doing the stand-up comedy as well as writing novels? Yeah, absolutely. I love it. I don't think I'll ever um, give it up. Um, we've done, I say we, because that my stand-up comedy act is myself and my identical twin brother, and we do the show together. Um, so we've been doing a little bit of a smaller tour. We've sort of been doing two or three nights in every city instead of two or three weeks um, because I've been writing and working on the next book. But, um, yeah, I think it it's a really good exercise for the different side of your brain than I use when writing because writing you're in a room on your own and your feedback comes through emails with your publisher and agent and in stand-up comedy, the, 
feedback comes from the audience sitting in front of you. And if they fold their arms and hate you, then you know it. Um, so it's a certain, there's, there's, there's an electricity to that sort of live environment, which is super fun. And then also, cause I work with my brother. So there's two of us on the stage, you know, that's a collaborative kind of approach. Um, and so that's different from running on my own as well as it's a really economical approach. You might have 12 minutes in a comedy club. You might have 50 minutes at a festival. You don't sort of have a hundred thousand words to really let things sort of breathe out. And um, it means you can sort of tackle different issues or thoughts in, in both forms. So I think it keeps, I think writing books keeps my comedy snappy and I think doing comedy keeps my book snappy. What novels have you read recently that you enjoyed? Oh, heaps. Um, Jane Harper, she's an amazing Australian author and she's just had a new book um, out at Christmas, which... It's fantastic. It's called Exiles, and she just does that. Um, we call it Aussie noir down here, and they're, they're different to my books. Um, it's very landscape informs the sort of detective who is often sort of stranded in a in a small town and and small communities with these um, isolated settings, and how the secrets and tensions sort of fester in those settings. And she just writes the landscape so beautifully. Um, really amazing. I will always recommend wholeheartedly a book from a couple of years ago, Stuart Turton's The Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle, which is like a Groundhog Day murder mystery. So it's sort of a little bit um, fantastical, sort of plays with form. And he's just so experimental and audacious and risk-taking. And I just love that book. And then I just finished um, over the weekend um, Remarkably Bright Creatures, which I also really love. That's great. Where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your novels? Yeah, so um, i got a website, which is just benjaminstevenson.com. Um, and then Instagram is the best socials for me, and it's Stevenson Experience, which is the name of my comedy duo. So just type in the Stevenson Experience and, and we'll come up and my author page will come up as well. Well, again, we've been speaking to Benjamin Stevenson, author of the novel, Everyone in My Family Has Killed Someone. The novel is available now, so go buy a copy. And Benjamin, thanks for doing this interview. Thanks for having me. Great fun. Absolutely. Everyone in my family has killed someone. Some of us, the high achievers, have killed more than once. I'm not trying to be dramatic, but it is the truth. And when I was faced with writing this down, difficult as it is with one hand, I realized that telling the truth was the only way to do it. It sounds obvious, but modern mystery novels forget that sometimes. They've become more about the tricks the author can deploy, what's up their sleeve instead of what's in their hand. Honesty is what sets apart what we call golden age mysteries, the Christies, the Chestertons. I know this because I write books about how to write books. There are rules, is the thing. A bloke named Ronald Knox was part of the gang and wrote down a set once, though he called them his commandments. They're in the first part of this book, in the epigraph that everyone always skips, but trust me, it's worth going back to. Actually, you should dog-ear it. I won't bore you with the details here, but it boils down to this. The golden rule of the golden age is play fair. Of course, this isn't a novel. All of this happened to me. But I do, after all, wind up with a murder to solve. Several, actually. Though I'm getting ahead of myself. 
The point is, I read a lot of crime novels, and I know most of these types of books have what's known as an unreliable narrator these days, where the person telling you the story is, in fact, lying most of the time. I also know that in recounting these events, I may be typecast similarly. So, I'll strive to do the opposite. Call me a reliable narrator. Everything I tell you will be the truth, or, at least, the truth as I knew it to be at the time that I thought I knew it. Hold me to that. This is all in keeping with Knox's commandments 8 and 9, for I am both Watson and detective in this book, where I play both writer and sleuth, and so am obligated to both light upon clues and not conceal my thoughts. In short, play fair. Actually, I'll prove it. If you're just here for the gory details, deaths in this book either happen or are reported to have happened in Chapter 1, Chapter 5, Chapter 8, there's a twofer in Chapter 10, and a hat-trick in Chapter 11. Then there's a bit of a stretch, but it picks up again at the end of Chapter 21, Chapter 25-ish, Chapter 26 and 27, there's probably two in Chapter 29, it's hard to tell, and then one each in Chapter 30 and Chapter 40. The first death's in about five minutes. I promise, that's the truth. Unless you listen to your audiobooks at triple speed or something. There is only one plot hole you could drive a truck through. I tend to spoil things. There are no sex scenes. What else? My name would be useful, I suppose. I'm Ernest Cunningham. It's a bit old-fashioned, so people call me Ern or Ernie. I should have started with that. But I promise to be reliable, not competent. Considering what I've told you, it is tricky to know where to start. When I say everyone, let's draw the line for that statement at my branch of the family tree. Although my cousin Amy did bring a prohibited peanut butter sandwich to a corporate picnic once and her HR rep almost cocked it, but I won't put her on the bingo card. Look, we're not a family of psychopaths. Some of us are good, others are bad, and some just unfortunate. Which one am I? I haven't figured that out yet. Of course, there's also the little matter of a serial killer known as the Black Tongue, who gets mixed up in all this, and $267,000 in cash, but we'll get to that. I know you're probably wondering something else right now. I did say everyone, and I promised no tricks. Have I killed someone? Yes, I have. Who was it? Let's get started. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.